Scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of the grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate? the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, and he... And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is God's word. Be seated. Well, good morning. And for those who don't know, my name is Sam. And I have the privilege of going through books of the Bible here as we study the book of Matthew. We go through Matthew and and all kinds of books, verse by verse. And I noticed the graphic that I made. I transposed the numbers. It's supposed to be 1 through 21. And I'm glad that it was... uh, read correctly. We, um, we, will not be in, we will be in Matthew next week when we're at the picnic, but Chris uh, at Damascus Road is a little ahead of us, so we're going to bounce around a little bit, you'll see. Uh, so next week he will preach through Matthew still, but I think it's in Matthew uh, 13, so we'll have to backtrack and get the back half of 12 when we return. Um, so last week, if you were with us, if not, you can download it, but last week we learned that the right response to the presence of Jesus, because there is a wrong one, the right response to the presence of Jesus is for men to repent of their sin. But Jesus experienced a lot of cities that didn't do that. And yet he was thankful enough or could rejoice enough in the Lord knowing that even if men don't repent, God is still in control. God is still the one orchestrating all of salvation. He is the Lord of salvation. His plan is undefeatable. His grace is irresistible. And so, he can rest. And he can even thank God for the fact that his mission on all earthly measures failed. But he knew in the eyes of God it was succeeding. But those to whom Jesus says he reveals himself, which we saw last week, some really hard words that Jesus spoke, hardened and difficult to understand even, perhaps even more difficult to accept, that he chooses whom he wishes to reveal himself to, and those that he does choose to reveal himself to, he invites into a a rest, he calls it, a rest where you will find, and he promises meaning, and hope, and joy, and security in him. And I ended by saying, you know, with all the invitations to rest and stuff that this world offers, it's difficult to hear, I guess, the invitation of Christ. And even those who do hear the invitation to rest, those who even know who Jesus is, those who believe who Jesus is, those who accept who He is, still seem to have trouble resting in what they know. We have rest in our minds, but... We don't often have rest in our souls. And so we live knowing Jesus, confessing Jesus, still enslaved to idols of money sometimes, idols of power, 
Idols that are largely the approval of men. Essentially, we end up resting in our own work, our own ability to get something or obtain something, rather than resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that kind of restlessness, we'll call it, is what the Pharisees rest in. This is the, there's two rests that are being contrasted here. One is the rest of Jesus, and one is the rest of these Pharisees that continue to oppose Jesus. Now, throughout the Gospel of Matthew and all the Gospels, there's basically three groups of people that Jesus interacts with. One is his disciples. The other is the crowds, which is often a mix of people. And then there's the opposition. We see the opposition today. Up to this point, that being chapter 12, there's been some rejection of Jesus. I mean, he condemned whole cities for rejecting him and for not repenting. But there's been very little confrontation. And chapter 12 is like a series of of confrontations where, where Jesus interacts with some religious leaders and really almost picks fights. And in this chapter, what we see is Jesus kind of pits himself against what are the iconic pillars of Judaism. That being the Sabbath, the temple, the law. And these contrasts, or this conflict, I should say, offer this contrast where Jesus says, we're talking about two different things. Two different kinds of rest. One is going to provide you genuine rest, and the other, this religious approach to Jesus, religious approach to God, is only going to provide you restlessness. And so, as he begins chapter 12 here, he's had an extended time of teaching, instructing the disciples, and warning the disciples of what it's going to be like in the mission field. And then, after that instruction, he kind of moves on towards the city and starts going through this grain field. We don't know where he's going exactly, but it says at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, so you can imagine the Pharisees are kind of following him. They're not his disciples, but they're following him, watching him carefully. They see what his disciples are doing. He says, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So, in order to understand, you may have heard Sabbath before. You may have heard this idea of rest that we're supposed to have. So, in order to understand kind of what is being charged here, what his disciples are being accused of, it's important to have just a basic understanding of the Sabbath, the law, the Sabbath law. Now, the Sabbath observance was instituted by God when he offered gave the Ten Commandments. And it's the fourth commandment. There are ten. I won't ask you to name them all. But the fourth kind of is the center, if you will, of the commandments where the first four kind of talk about man's relationship with God and the last six are really man's relationship with one another. And so this fourth one's kind of a turning point. And this is what it reads in Exodus chapter 20. God says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. On it you shall not do any work. On it you shall not do any work. That's key. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your livestock or your sojourners within your gates. No one works. He says... The basis of it is, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And we know that God can't literally rest as in He gets tired, because He's God. So we understand that by ceasing to labor, it means something else. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, the Sabbath is known as the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. And it's a period that even today uh, the Jews will celebrate. My family, my mom and her side of the family is all Jewish. Orthodox, well, actually not Orthodox, but they are Jewish in, in practice. And they celebrate the Sabbath to this day. It is celebrated from uh, sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. And the command was designed to provide an opportunity to rest from your labor, to actually just stop doing stuff. 
but it also was a means to test the allegiance of Israel. Whether they truly were going to obey God and, and worship God by following this command, because especially as Americans, especially uh, for many of you men, we like to work hard and like to not waste time, right? So just to take a day to stop when you could get something done is difficult. But work was never really comprehensively defined. Didn't really define what work was. It gives a couple hints to a couple examples, but for the most part, it wasn't comprehensively defined. So the Jews came up with 39 categories. I will not read the 39 categories to you, okay? The 39 categories of work that included all kinds of creative activities like baking, like you couldn't bake, uh, you couldn't build, uh, you couldn't weave, stuff like that. So they defined it in these 39 categories. But even that was a little general, right? And what the Jews were trying to do was to create somewhat of a fence or a hedge around the law so they never got close to ever actually breaking it. So they defined it, and then it just got more complex and more specific and more ridiculous. Let me give you some examples of some Sabbath laws. They taught that you should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, and that would be reaping. All right? If the lights were on when Sabbath came, this would be like, you know, not electricity, but, you know, candles. If the lights were on when Sabbath came and it began at sundown, right, you could not blow them out because if they had not been lit in time, then you could not light them. Isn't that crazy? It was unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. No exception to the, or There was an exception to this that you were allowed to move a ladder on the Sabbath, but you only could move it four steps. It gets more specific. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments on the Sabbath, and this might be construed as carrying a burden, which was forbidden. Big, huge brooch, right? You know, not going to work. The gangster gold ain't going to work uh, for the Jewish Sabbath. It was fine. This is great. It was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath. Oh, good, right? Woo. But you couldn't spit on the ground because that made mud, and mud was mortar, and that was work. Or, ladies, if a woman got mud on her dress, she was to wait until it had dried, and then she was permitted to crumple the dress in her hands one time and crush it and shake it out once, but if that didn't do the trick, then she had to wear it. Crazy, huh? So, you can see that this Sabbath, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules to define what these 39 categories actually meant. At one point, they got to a place where you couldn't leave, you couldn't go a certain distance from your house. So then they created exceptions like, well, if you put a pile of dirt from your house in a little pouch and attach it to your belt, you haven't really left your land. So you could see them getting like super complex and then it becoming just enslaving and overwhelming and scary and then really feeling good when you were able to fulfill all these rules. But ultimately the Sabbath became a very enslaving thing. And so, though the disciples are probably just snacking, right? They're probably being accused of reaping. They're reaping a harvest by just popping these grains into their mouth. And that was forbidden. Couldn't reap. So the disciples, I mean, the Pharisees basically come and say, look, your disciples are doing something that's unbiblical. So they say. And Jesus says, au contraire. And what he does was he goes to Scripture to reveal to them that their entire approach to Scripture is off. Their entire application of the law is skewed and their view of God actually is entirely wrong. He opens the Bible. And he reminds them first of a story that comes out of 1 Samuel 21. It's a story of David. And David is just warned by King Saul's son, his best friend Jonathan, like, hey, dad wants to kill you, you better leave. And so he leaves Jerusalem and he goes to a city called Nob. And as he's there, he comes, it's a religious center at the time. And he is very hungry, he and the, the men that are with him. And he approaches the priest and he's like, hey, we need some bread. We're hungry. 
And the priest is like, I don't got any bread. Well, I got this holy bread that only the priests are supposed to eat. He's like, yeah, it works. And he takes it. And he eats it. And Jesus' point is really simple. Like, though David, on the surface, does something that really appears unlawful, like he broke the rule, Scripture never condemns him. Never condemns him for it. Like there's something beyond the surface that perhaps is more important. So not only do they need to read Old Testament history correctly, right? You can't just go in and go, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. What's going on here? Ask some deeper questions. He reveals to them another example. He says, your whole reading of the law is a little skewed as well. And he says, think about the temple, guys. Okay, On Saturday the priests go in and they do special sacrifices, which would be considered work, right? There was a gentleman who came to our church many years ago. He was a Sabbatarian, which means he celebrates or tries. I would, I would argue that it's very difficult to celebrate the Sabbath in the Jewish sense if you really want to go in-depth to all the details. But he's celebrating. He couldn't figure out. He was, he was coming on Sunday. He was worshiping with us. He's like, I can't figure out how you Sabbath. And he, what do you mean? He's like, because you're preaching, so that's work. Like, yeah, interesting, huh? Maybe you're not under that law anymore. It started a long conversation. He left our church. But, it's not the point. His point, Jesus' point is like, look, these priests are working. On the Sabbath, these priests are offering special sacrifices by command that they're told to do. And so their temple service or their role as priests actually forced them to break the law. Which seems like a commanded contradiction by God. Or, perhaps the temple, a dwelling place for the Lord, makes their work holy. Perhaps there's something else superior to that. Something else going on here. And this is why Jesus ends by telling them, yeah, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple, which is protecting them from breaking the law, is here. Namely, himself. So then he ends with telling them that they would not find themselves making confident and very ignorant assertions if they had just read the book of Hosea correctly. So it goes Old Testament history, law, and the, a minor prophet, of which Hosea says, God does not desire sacrifice, He desires mercy. You guys are missing the whole point. And that's Jesus' point. They're missing the entire point of the law. God does not desire good works from men, but good hearts. And in one exchange, one little exchange, Jesus declares Himself Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the Temple, and Lord of all Scripture. Okay, Now, as a Pharisee who is an expert in the law, who is devoted to God's Word, devoted to temple service, like they are the fundy, fundamentalist, conservative, super Bible Awana champions, right? They know it all. And for them to be told that they're wrong is a pretty major deal. See, the real, the real problem that they had with Jesus is not that He doesn't celebrate the Sabbath correctly, though that comes up often. They're always like, are you going to do this on the Sabbath? Oh, He's screwing up on the Sabbath. It's His Lordship. They are upset with His claims to authority. They're upset with the fact that He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Temple. I am the Lord of the Law. No one comes to the Father except whom I reveal. I am the one in charge. That's what they don't like because they're in charge. See, everyone admires Jesus and respects Jesus. They even love Him a little bit until He declares Himself Lord of all truth, Lord of all spirituality, Lord of all salvation. You can't just like Jesus. But you might like Him until He says, by the way, I own you. I'm your Master. I'm your Lord. What you have is mine. I call the shots. I created you. 
Then Jesus takes on a whole different identity for you. And it's an identity that's either going to make you love him or hate him. And the Pharisees hate him. In order to maintain their own lordship in their own lives, they have decided to misuse the law and abuse the law, something that many people do, many of us do oftentimes. They become what we've come to know as legalists. You've probably heard of someone, and you maybe have accused people of being, oh, you're legalistic, legalistic. You know it's a bad thing, but maybe you don't know what it actually means. Instead of the law being the revealer of unrighteousness, that's what it was designed to do, to show us just how sinful we were. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in, and Jesus condemns them. It's like, you guys think you follow the law. Like, oh, we, we haven't committed adultery. Look, we're good. He says, have you lust in your heart? The law was intended to show you how sinful you were, how much of a need of a Savior you have. But instead of using it correctly for that, for the Pharisee or for the legalist, it becomes a tool through which you can produce righteousness. A tool through which you can feel superior to others. A tool for which you can feel entitled because you obey rightly and God owes you for being good. And you get upset when your life goes bad because you've been so good. You're like, God, what are you doing? I've been really good. I've prayed, I've read my Bible, I've gone to church. You're a legalist. Obedience to law for the Pharisees and for anyone who's a legalist became the means through which they were deemed acceptable by God. And it was also the means by which they could maintain that acceptability. And that's why they're so worried about Jesus and the Sabbath, because if they get it wrong... The whole world comes crashing down. And what that does is produce in you both pride and despair. Pride when you fulfill that law that you've created or that you think is what deems you acceptable or despair when you don't. So as we see with Jesus' interactions, it's, it's the way that men not only deem themselves acceptable for God, but how they deem other men acceptable. Spiritual enough, holy enough, godly enough. And the Pharisees were so good at following the law, they had it all figured out. They themselves were lords. And they could lord their goodness over others. And they could look down and say, man, you don't know that verse, right? You don't follow the Sabbath that way? I'm not a sinner like you. I got it figured out. That's the rest of the Pharisees that they offer. Now, there are a lot of things that this kind of approach to God and His law offers, but none of them are rest. In truth, there is a real restlessness about legalism. And before you think to yourself, well, I'm not a legalist, I've heard about these kind of people. I think we all are at some level, maybe at some time. When you live as a, as a legalist, and it's, you have this restlessness where you never really feel quite good enough. You never feel like you've really done enough, which brings you a restlessness. Legalism does not produce restful people. It produces very fearful very critical, very unloving, very unlikable people. And unlike like liberty or licentiousness, right, self-indulgence, the path of legalism and the path of self-righteousness, like when you're, when you're a licentious kind of person, you trust in bad things, right? I'm going to indulge in bad things, do bad things. Legalism is so scandalous that it actually gets you to trust in good things. Now, it's unlikely, but possible, that many of us will become legalistic with something like the Sabbath. Some of us might. We have much more pleasant legalisms today. 
And by legalism, I say the way that you declare your own goodness or the way in which you determine goodness in others. We all have our ways. We all have our lists. We have very pleasant legalisms like whether you drink beer or not. Like some people are like, oh, you don't drink beer or you drink beer. Right? It can go either way. Whether you have, this is a new one, whether you have a regular date night with your wife or not. I'm a great husband because I date my wife every Friday night. Right? You know, you can still be a jerk and a horrible husband and date your wife. Just get that out of the, out of the way. But we define that. That's what a good husband is. I don't know how many people have ever heard like, well, do you date your wife? Like, we're having a marriage problem. Do you date your wife? Like, well, that might be an issue. Might be something else. Other legalisms like whether you homeschool or not. Oh, public school? Oh, homeschool? Right? We all think it. One side or the other. Whether you, oh, This is the new one of the day. Whether you eat healthy or not. Right? Organic. Whether the chickens are unfettered and uncaged and run around. Right? Whether they got names and friends. Like, oh, like yesterday. Th- I, confession, ready? I went to McDonald's yesterday. I know right now you're like, oh my gosh. I am not coming back to this church. I know some of you are thinking that right now. I haven't gone to McDonald's in probably, I don't know, 10 years. But someone got me like a $25 gift card at McDonald's, and I kid you not, me and my wife were like, what are we going to do with this? Because we just were like, oh, McDonald's, right? It was good. I'm telling you, it was good. <laughs> it was good. And I, I was like sweating going up. I'm like, ah, I guess I'll get a cheeseburger. And I was thinking like, I seriously, because my wife is really like into like healthy stuff, right? And so I was like, she going to be, I had to ask, like, yeah, it's okay, you think? Is it all right to do? I felt, like, sinful, almost. Like, here you go. And she's like, do you want the large? I'm like, yeah, I'll have the large. <laughs> right? But we all have our opinions about it. Oh, you and eat McDonald's. Like, I went to, you know, whatever those health food places are. I don't even know their name. Yeah, Trader Joe's. That's where I shop, Trader Joe's, you know. Where'd you get that? Whole Foods. We have better legalisms. Whether you're radical on mission or not, we define what radical is. Well, did you go to Ethiopia? That's not very radical. You know, that's radical. Well, I just like actually talked to my neighbor. <laughs> have you talked to your neighbor? No. Right? We go back and forth. I didn't see you at the prayer meeting. Well, I didn't see you at the Bible study. Yeah. And all the people at the prayer meeting are like, who's not here? And all the people are like, who's not here? Money you spend, movies you see, language you use. Y'all got your lists. Theologies you ascribe to, books you've read or not read. Have you read this? No. (laughs) You should probably read that before you say anything else. (laughs) Politicians you agree with or disagree with. It's just... We have this system set up where we define goodness of others. We don't say it out loud, but it's there. And it's really no different than what the Jews are doing. And don't get me wrong, none of the things I mentioned are bad. None of those things are bad. In fact, the Bible speaks to most of them. It doesn't give us the list of bad words we should use. It doesn't much more scandalously by telling us, only use your words to build up. Oh, now I actually have to think about what I say. I can't have a list. These things all become bad. doesn't matter what it is. They all become bad. The best of things, even a date night with your wife, can become bad when it begins to define your ultimate standing with God or with men. That's when it becomes bad. That's when it's crossed over into something sinful and idolatrous. So we all have this susceptibility, this this possibility of falling into a pattern of self-righteousness. 
with God and, and, and with others. And so the question for all of us is like, well, how do I know if I'm becoming legalistic? And I think the exchange that uh, Jesus uh, has after the grain field gives us some insight. It's interesting that it follows the grain field, right? He follows the grain field and they're talking about the Sabbath. Then he goes directly into the synagogue and deals with the Sabbath. It's almost as if he wants to pick a fight. It's almost as if he wants to push it all the way to the end. It says in verse 9, He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, well, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Like they've already had this other exchange. What can, can you do anything you want, Jesus, on the Sabbath? Are there no rules? But people always go to those extremes, right? I think it's okay to drink. Oh, it's okay to get drunk, huh? I didn't say that, actually. They always go to extremes. So they've gone to an extreme now. Right? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? Boom. Right? They're like, here we go. And Jesus doesn't blink an eye. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep but falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? Notice there's no response. I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? Exclamation point. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Right, guys? It's lawful to do good. If your kid is hurt and scrapes his knee, like, I'd help you, but putting a bandage on that would be work. So you're going to have to bleed until sunset. Right? Of course not. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched out and he restored it healthy like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired how to destroy him. Maybe destroy his life. Maybe just destroy his reputation. How can we get him? This guy is causing problems. This guy is disrupting our lordship. We got this figured out, man. Everyone knows that we are superior. And he's coming and saying, he's Lord of the Sabbath and all rules are off. Freaking out. So, I think through this exchange, we see what it means to become legalistic. So, kind of like you might be a redneck, right? You might be legalistic if this is happening. You might be legalistic when you are beginning to determine other people's righteousness according to obedience to a law or some work or some practice. In other words, you become super critical. That's what they're doing in the grain fields. Oh, Jesus, what are they doing? You're going to heal Jesus? You're always looking at everyone else. Always critical of whether people are godly enough, holy enough, righteous enough. You become super critical. Acutely interested in everyone else's sin. Having become very secure in your own self-righteousness, the rules that you follow, you spend most of your time criticizing and condemning unrighteous behavior in those near you and those not near you. You talk about sinful behavior all the time. Other people's sinful behavior all the time. You put Facebook posts about it. You talk about it in conversation. Everyone's sinful behavior. And you spend most of your time calling people back to what you have deemed as righteous behavior. If you think it's okay to drink, you condemn those who don't. If you think it's not okay to drink, you condemn those who do. Language, homeschooling, whatever, McDonald's people, right? I know some of you are, I have respect for McDonald's. At least Burger King, right? They have flame broil, not fried, not microwave, whatever. Second, you might be legalistic if you have become selectively obedient to your own rules. Not only do you become super critical, you become hypocritical. That's what these guys are. Jesus is like, okay, so you say don't do any work, but you're going to get the sheep out, aren't you? Well, yeah. You become selectively obedient. You're willing to break your own rule, which really isn't a rule at all, for some personal benefit. You allow for exceptions that you deem worthy while holding everyone else strictly accountable without any exception that you don't deem worthy. Professional legalists like Pharisees become lords of the loopholes. 
condemning everyone's sin as they justify their own. So you become hypocritical, really. You're willing to flex or break your rule whenever it's convenient or works for you. Third, you might be legalistic when your obedience and devotion to some rule, work, or practice actually prevents you from helping people. You become unloving. So devoted to your rules, you become unloving. That's why Jesus says, is it, is it okay to do good? Is it okay to, to love this person? Or are you going to stick with your rules that say, well, I can't love them? If you have any rule or practice that prevents you from loving somebody, and that's largely or often a person that you deem too sinful enough to love, you might have a problem. God's law, Jesus summarized as loving God and loving people. That was the purpose of it. That's what it should lead you to. Now, we don't need to go into what love means and how we need to affirm every single thing out there. I'm not suggesting that at all, but I do know that we all agree we know what an unloving person looks like. Never pit the law of God against the love of God or people against one another. So you become legalistic when the law you uphold or the one you make up is more important than people. Fourth, you might be legalistic when your upholding of some law actually separates you from Jesus or isolates you from other people. You basically become arrogant and very unlikable. And the only people that like to hang out with you are the only people that uphold the same self-righteous rules that you agree with. You end up communing with people that are just like you. You ever wonder why it's never the Pharisees said, it's the Pharisees. They're always together, reveling in one another's rule upholding. Your love for self-righteousness will lead you to be loud. It'll lead you to be argumentative. It'll lead you to be confrontational. It'll lead you to be controlling, very arrogant, and no one will want to be around you except other people that are loud, confrontational, arrogant, and controlling. And what happens when you become a legalist, I believe, and I may be wrong, but I was one at one time, very good one. It results in you having basically no friends, or as I said, creating a community with some sense of theological or practical superiority complex. That's what happens. You've defined what holiness is, and you hang out with the holy people, and that's it. Ultimately, it's all rooted in the same thing. Ready? It's all rooted in the same thing, which is this. Your criticism, your hypocrisy, lack of love and arrogance, it all speaks about your relationship with God. Because your arrogance and interacting, you're only going to see arrogance as you engage with other people. You're only going to see criticism when you engage with other people. Or you're only going to see whether someone's unloving when they engage with other people. What that tells us is everything we need to know and you about your relationship with God. In other words, you're legalistic because you believe God is. You believe that your righteousness, your standing before God is dependent upon your obedience to some rule, work, or practice. You're very fearful. Pharisees and legalistic people are some of the most fearful people you will meet because they're never sure they're good enough. People often say, and this is non-believers as well, well, I'm going to get to heaven because you know, I'm a pretty good person. And in that you can hear a fear. They might not be. And a lot of us are very fearful of our salvation because even if we claim to know Jesus, we still believe it's dependent upon what we've done or not done. We still live in a fear that we may not be good enough, that my salvation is, best, is based on my own efforts toward Him. So here's how you know if you're a legalist. Ready? And I have probably said this like ten sermons because I keep going back to it because it's convicting for me personally. 
So I don't say this as, well, I got this figured out. Here you go. I say this as someone who gets beat up with it all during the week, and now I get to share with you. <laughs> Enjoy. And that's this. You'll know you're a legalist, someone who is ultimately saving themselves or trying to. If when you think about having or keeping your relationship with Jesus, when you think about your relationship with Jesus, when, when someone asks you that question, which they always ask, how's your walk, right? How's your walk with the Lord? All right. So let's just overlook the cheesiness of the question. Think about the answer. When someone asks you that question, where does your mind go first? Where does your mind go first? Because if it first turns to everything you have done or anything you have not done, and not to Christ's work for you, you're legalist. If you start to go towards all the awesome things you've done and go, man, my walk with the Lord's pretty rad. Or all the bad things that you've done and go, no, I feel horrible, right? You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about your own work or the work you should have done and not about the finished work of Christ. Your mind must first go to the work of Christ or you'll never rest. You'll be restless like the Pharisees, swinging between fear and pride. I don't think I'm good enough. I did pretty good today. I really did something bad. I really rocked it. Right? Back and forth. Jesus offers a totally different kind of rest. A completely different, mind-blowing kind of rest that is not connected with your obedience. What? Yes. He understands better than we ever will that the law and your obedience to the law can never, ever, 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 ever change a simple man's heart into something good. It doesn't possess that power. It can only further reveal how bad it is. So the more you try to be good, guess what? You're going to see how much you suck. That's the reality. And when Jesus revealed to the Pharisees, guess what? Your best good, which I know you think is pretty good, but your best good is never going to be good enough. What did they do? They wanted to destroy Him. It's interesting, when you begin to talk about grace with people and talk about, you know what, your obedience your behavior, it doesn't matter. Now, I know when I say that, you go, oh, behavior doesn't matter. What I'm saying is belief is primary. Behavior is secondary. We always start the other way around, try to get people to behave so that they'll believe. It never happens that way. It never works that way. Jesus tells them, look, your good's not going to be good enough. You're never going to make it. And they want to destroy him, which is often the response of anyone who talks the same way. But aware of their plans, what does he do? He, he leaves. He withdraws from, from arguing. The one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who is the Lord of the sanctuary, the Lord of Scripture, doesn't exercise his lordship like the world, right? He's not going to argue with them. He's not going to beat them into submission. Jesus is not just a better Pharisee with better rules to make us better behave. Jesus is a Savior. And you know what he does? The law reveals how unrighteous we are. And Jesus doesn't come and say, well, here's what you got to do to be righteous. You've got to follow these rules. He goes and he accomplishes righteousness for us and gives it to us. Romans 8 says it better than anything. If you want to memorize any chapter in Scripture, Romans 8, start there. Part of it says this, verses 3 and 4, For God has done, not will do, has done, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. 
who walk not according to the flesh, not depending upon your own work, but according to the Spirit and trusting in Him. See, the, the way the Spirit works and the Holy Spirit acts is He always begins, when He's going to save somebody, guess where He starts? He reveals the ugliness of your sin. That's where He starts. But it never ends there. The ugliness of our sin reveals the need for a Savior, and then He blows our mind with the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ. See, men tend towards legalism because they're scared of punishment. And rightly so. We should be scared of the wrath of God. That is something to be feared. Jesus says that. Don't fear these men who can't do squat to you. Fear the one who can condemn the soul to hell. Men tend towards legalism because we rightly fear God's punishment for disobedience, but we wrongly believe that we can fix it through better obedience. As we try to obey and miserably fail, guess what? We fear most admitting that we are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. We fear admitting that we are weak and that we are weary. We fear that if we tell God, I just can't obey your rules, I just can't do it, um, that somehow He's going to reject us. And that if we pretend that we're strong, somehow He'll receive us. If we don't confess that we're actually sinful, if we don't admit that we're actually weak, if we don't you know, confess that we actually don't have it all together, somehow that's that. And so we'll become like Pharisees and we try to pretend like we're strong. Pretend we can follow rules and pretend it will fix us. Jesus shows us very simply that unless you admit that you don't possess the ability to obey. Hear that? Unless you get to the place where you, you can admit that you, I don't possess the ability to obey. Unless you admit that you're weak and you're weary and you're sinful, He can't help you. He can't help the Pharisees because they won't admit they're weak. They think they're strong. They can't admit that they're bad. They think they're good. And Jesus is like, dude, you're not fooling anybody. Jesus offers rest, but it doesn't come through moral living. Here's what it comes through. Ready? Here's the big takeaway. Rest comes through repentance. It comes through repentance. Rest comes from denying the self, not proving the self. Rest comes from admitting you're weak, not pretending you're strong. Rest comes from believing you are wrong, not arguing that you are always right. Rest comes from receiving freely, undeservedly, the righteousness of Christ and not trying to create or work for our own. Rest comes from repentance. Period. We need not fear punishment of God when we admit that we're bad. Because the love of God on the cross fully absorbs all of God's wrath. So you think about this. When the possibility of punishment is removed, in this case, by the love of God, fear is completely extinguished. This is what the Apostle John says in his letter. He says, there's no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. See, until you see the love of God in the cross of Christ, you will always fear that your obedience is not good enough and neither is anyone else's. You will be fearful and you'll be critical and you will be hypocritical and arrogant and unloving. But a deep conviction that Jesus Christ died in your place, taking all the punishment you deserved, and that He rose from the dead to give you new life, a deep conviction in that makes you fearless. The cross of Christ will make you into an encouraging person, not a critical one. The cross of Christ will make you into an honest person, not a hypocritical one. Yeah, I'm horrible. I'm way worse than you think. And Jesus already knew that when He went to the cross. The cross of Christ makes you into a loving person because 
every time you don't want to love somebody because you don't think they deserve it, you remember how much Christ loved you when you didn't deserve it. And the cross of Christ makes you into a deeply humble person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have a real consciousness of your sin, and yet an even ever-growing sense of the grace of Jesus Christ. The cross makes me, us, and I pray you, restful. Free. Joyful. Filled with hope, even in the midst of struggle. Because you know that your divine approval does not come from the quantity of your faith, or catch this, not even the quality of it. Your approval of God doesn't come from the quality of your faith. It comes from the quality of Jesus and what He did. And that's where our eyes should turn. And guess what? That is why the Gospel is good news. That's why. So we're going to close the service with worship and we're going to sing with joy. If you don't know Christ, you're living in fear. Believing maybe that you're good enough. I'm telling you, you're never going to make it. But Christ has already made it for you. Just give your heart to Him. And we're going to sing for those who do believe as if you actually believe that. That what you know with your mind, you know with your heart. That God says, I'm well pleased in you. But I sin. Yeah, rest comes from repentance. Repent, confess, rejoice. Repent, rejoice. Repent, rejoice. There's my life. I pray it's yours. And we're going to give of our tithes and offerings, and then we're going to love each other as the service closed in awesome fellowship. Let's pray. Holy Father, Your law is good. Your law is good in that when used properly, Lord, it shows us how much and how far we have fallen. It shows us, Father, our rebellion. It shows us our brokenness. It shows us our ugliness, Lord. And I pray that as we see that, we will be led to the cross where we see Your love for the broken, Your love for the ugly, Your love for us rebels. We see what You've done.